Good morning, everybody. You guys can see it. It's our first Christmas song of the year. Isn't that awesome? That's crazy. Uh, I hope you guys have had good weeks. Um, we are celebrating the Christmas season at our house. We just started this week putting some things out. We got our nativity sets out, and I did say plural nativity sets, because if you do remember anything from last year about uh, my family, uh, my little girl Camille has developed a very deep affection for the little baby Jesus, and she just loves to take him everywhere. So last year, she ended up breaking his arms, uh, so we had to glue him on, and then so my parents, my, my in-laws, they, they bought her her own little nativity, so we set that out this year, but last year, um, we got that for her. It was deemed as the unbreakable nativity. Uh, I don't know if you remember me talking about this, but somehow, to our bewilderment, she figured out how to break baby Jesus as well in that set too. So we had two broken baby Jesuses, and they're in the nativities now, and so just kind of sad to report you. Uh, we're a week in, and we lost a shepherd already. So uh, we did. Somehow, he was decapitated um, on one of his many journeys with Tiggy from Daniel Tiger, who has now made an appearance in the, the nativity scene now. Um, so we're hoping that maybe by the end of the year, uh, the shepherd will be able to rejoin his friends in nativity. So kids are fun, aren't they? Uh, we are in week two of our series called Go, and Go is focused on empowering uh, ourselves to, to make him know, that God would empower us to make him known to the world, that we understand that that's a call for everyone. That's a call for us in our lives, and that we would pray that God would embolden our hearts towards that reality. And one of the things that we hope that in this series might pop out as an understanding for you is that God created us uniquely. Like we all have certain gifts and talents and, and we are to take those giftings into this idea and actions of evangelism, of making God known. And so last week we spent a lot of our time talking about this aspect of work and how God through Christ redefined what fulfilling work looked like. Before Christ, before I should say the fall, fulfillment and work was found in working the land. It was doing Everything was perfect. We had satisfaction and fulfillment fully in our work because God and man walked together perfectly. It was great. But then the fall happens, right? And then after the fall, as corruption and sin and death enters the world, our work is cursed. God says that we shall by the sweat of our brow now work and eat of our bread. And so there's a, there's a stress in our work now. There's a, there's a hollowness sometimes, if we're honest, in our work. And that is there because of the fall. And so we, we walked into that reality and we pulled out a kind of misunderstood, overlooked verse that Solomon wrote about there is the fact that, the fact that there is an eternity written in our hearts that God has planted in with all of our hearts a piece of eternity. And so what that means is that we knew, we know what the garden was like. We know what perfection and fulfillment and gratification and work really feels like. We still know that today. But we also know what it's going to be like when we get to the glory with the Lord, that we know what perfection will be like with him some days, someday. That is planted deep within our hearts. And that eternity in our hearts, that being planted in there, knowing what once was and what will be, is the fundamental reason that we have such discontentment in life, such a wrestling in our lives on earth. We will never really ever be able to satisfy that peace of eternity in our heart, that knowledge that our heart still has by human means alone. But when Christ comes, we said last week, when Christ comes, he redefi redefines work. He gives us a new work, and that new work is found in the Great Commission. 
In Matthew 28, he says that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you to observe, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That is our new work as brothers and sisters in Christ, and there is fulfillment and gratification to our hearts in that because it's an eternal work. It's eternal work. It's, it's ordained by the Lord, and the Lord promises that he will be with us in that work to the end of the age. And so that's our new work. It brings fulfillment and satisfaction to our hearts. Not that it's not hard. I'm not going to promise you that you instantly start doing God's work and then I feel great about myself. No, this work is hard. It's hard, but it's fulfilling because it's eternal and it's focused on the Lord who is the author of our story in our life in general. It's spiritual work. And so we are all commanded to do that. Not one of us can, can neglect that command. We are all told to bring glory to his name. It's not just for those superstar Christians out there, those rock star Christians. That's not just their job. It's, it's our job. There's just no way around it. It's there for us to do. We just fi- have to figure out how. Like, how do I do that? How do I do that myself? And that's where we're going to consult the word here. Because inside of scripture, uh, in God's people, in their stories, we, we find kind of different styles of how people fulfilled this great commission in a life. And we're going to look at six different styles that we see in the New Testament of, of people who, who felt commanded to go and tell and were authentic to the way that God created them in their giftings. Uh, but before we kind of walk into those styles, we're going to have a discussion on some kind of bedrock, some foundational elements that need to be present in our life for going and telling, making God known to, to really take root. We need to talk about things from areas like authenticity, compassion, sacrifice, relationships, communication. All of them have some bedrock that we need to kind of get to to really foster a lifestyle that is about going and telling. And so the first area that we want to walk in today is this area of authenticity. Uh, authenticity. In my generation, I don't know if it maybe in your generation, it's this way. But my generation, this is a trendy word. People talk about authentic things all the time. We want organic. We want all the real stuff. We don't want fake things anymore. And it's really, really trendy. People are tired of fake stuff. But the problem is, is within our culture, we have created so much disconnection within our relationships, mostly because of technology and our lifestyle, that we've created atmospheres where it is just easy to project an image about ourselves that's not true. We can hide behind an image that we project. We see this on social media all the time. I mean, when you watch people's social media feeds, what do you see? You see the best, that's their greatest hits, are on social media. Nobody's sharing their ugly moments. Like, you can project on social media the kind of person that you want other people to think that you are. You project what you want them to believe to be true about you. But far too often, the majority of the time, that's not the whole story. Like, there's more to us in badness and more to us in depravity than just all of those, oh, look at me, I ate this great food today. And so I don't know if you ever wrestle with this. Do you ever... You ever feel like if, if somebody would really find out who you were, like it would be finished? Do you ever like wrestle with like trying to basically go through life, trying to convince other people that you're something that you're not? Does that grow weary for you to try to pretend that you're cool when you're not? Uh, 
to pro- project confidence when you're not, to, to show off um, a skill that you're really not proficient in, but you want make, to make people believe you are, uh, to kind of display a good heart and kind of project that, but you know that you're, you're not really that way. Do you, do you struggle with that? Because uh, there's a guy, his name is John Corcoran, and I think he knows exactly what that's like. There's a guy named John Corcoran. John Corcoran never learned to read or write. But he was such a problem in elementary that people kept promoting him up to the next grade. He never learned how to read. He got into high school, and he developed a whole different set of skills. He said that I started cheating and turning on other people's papers and works. I dated the valedictorian. And I hung around college prep kids. I couldn't read words, but I could read the system, and I could read people. And so John Corcoran graduates from high school, doesn't know how to read or write, and he gets an athletic scholarship to Texas Western College. And he cheats his way through college, and he obtains no other than a degree in education. And he became a high school teacher for the next 17 years. And he didn't know how to read or write. And he said that he created within his classroom an oral and visual environment. They didn't have written words. He used two or three teachers' aides to kind of write things on the board and to read the bulletins. And then finally, after 17 years, he left teaching and became a real estate developer. And then he learned to read and write. And he later became an advocate for a better educational system, which is ironic in some ways. But in a sense, I think we all are John Corcoran's. Most of us aren't faking that we're reading or writing. We don't know how to do those things. But, but we live our lives trying to persuade others to persuade ourselves and to persuade God himself that we're more good than we really are, that we're better than we really are. But deep down inside, though, we grow in our knowledge that we're not, that we're not. And here is, is where we as Christians need not be afraid to lean into this. To not be afraid to say, look, I know that I have a broken heart, and it's corrupt, and it manifests itself out in this way. But let me tell you about my Savior, who is working through all that corruptness and that brokenness, and he is redeeming those things in my life. We need not be afraid to say those things, because that glorifies the Lord. Our culture wants that. They need that. They want that message. They They want real people with real struggles, surrendering to a real Savior who is rescuing them from the real problem, and that is their hearts. A broken and corrupt hearts that we cannot understand that bend towards sin. And so friends, what the unchurched desire to see most in us is authenticity. What the unchurched desire to see most is authenticity. And so for the Christian, our authenticity and our reality in that has to revolve around the way that God would want us to be perceived in this world. How would God want us to be known? He, he knows that perception is important, and he has called us to live a life that brings glory to his name. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus writes some really poignant words about what we are to project ourselves, what we are to be to this world. And these are words that you know. In Matthew 5, it says that you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be so, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. 
in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so in this passage, Jesus gives us two marks of identity. He says that those who know him are salt and light. And what does salt do? We, have, we, put, we put tons of salt in our food all the time, sodium. Salt enhances flavor. I don't know if you're one of those people that have a salt shaker with every meal and just douses everything with salt. But what does salt do? It just, it makes things taste better. It improves things. And that's exactly what we are to be to the world. We are to make things better. We are to enhance things. And what does Christ say, though, about salt that loses its taste? What is it good for? It's not good for anything. Nobody wants to put salt on their food that doesn't taste like anything. Nobody wants to, that's a rock, that's what it is. Nobody wants to put rock on their food. And so if we are salt and we are enhancers of the world because of Christ and we project ourselves as salt and we're not, what do you think people are going to figure out? They're going to figure out pretty quickly that you're not. And they're going to reject that. And here's what happens when we portray salt and we're really not. You make people believe that that's what they should expect out of other followers. Oh, that must be what salt is. I don't want to have anything to do with that. They get an imitation because salt that's not salt is not authentic. It's fake. It's fake. I don't know if most of you guys were alive in 1985. Uh, there was uh, one of the headlines in 1985's bigger news event was this uh, contention between Pepsi and Coke. I, I don't know if you remember 1985, but in 1985, Coke changed its formula. I don't know if you remember this. They called it New Coke, right? What had happened is that Pepsi was gaining market share. Their sales were going up in the early 80s and into 85, and they led a campaign that was centered around blind taste tests. Don't you remember those commercials like blind taste tests? And here's what they found, that overwhelmingly people preferred the sweeter taste of Pepsi more than they did Coke. And so in 1985, Coke panics, and they reinvent their formula to be a sweeter formula, and they put it out on the market. And do you know what happened? People went nuts. Like, people went nuts. The devoted Coke drinkers just were flabbergasted, up in arms. The media portrayed them in very negative light. And so, three months after they introduced this new product, they, they put Coca-Cola Classic back on the mar- in the mar- marketplace. And do you know what happened? Sales of the original Coke skyrocketed. They re-engaged their base that was starved for an authentic taste. Their cells exploded to levels that it had not seen prior, even prior to reinventing their formula. They re-engaged their base that was longing for an authentic taste. And I, 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 I think the same can be said for this world in Christ. That in some ways, people are desiring an authentic taste of who Christ is. To see and know believers who live with some authenticity to his life and his way and his commands and his spirit because we, look, we do all sorts of things to try to make the message of Christ more palatable to people. We try to enhance it and make it sweeter, but like the message is good. It is a good message. It's like a fine wine. It only gets better. It doesn't need to be changed. The message is good, and people want that authentic message in their life. They need to see it. And so we're to be salt, but the Word says we are to be light, that we point people to the way that we would make known the hope of Christ, the light of Christ in our life. And this is a perception that Christ would want us to be known on. These perceptions that we are salt and light, that we would taste, that people would see us and taste God's goodness, his love, his restoration through us, that they would see the light of hope in our lives and come to know him. That through us, others would see our good works and give praise to who? 
they would give praise to God, that they may see and know us and praise God because of it. Our perception to the world matters to God. And so we have to strive to be authentic to this kind of message, salt and light, and not to claim that we have this all together because you don't. You don't have it all together, but he does, right? And we point to that. And if we're going to build a recipe or ingredients for authenticity as a believer, I think it has to include like three different things. If we're going to build a recipe, you have to include belief, vulnerability, and you have to include repentance. And that last one's an interesting one. It may not seem like it fits, but it's probably the most important. And so belief, like you can't tell about what you don't believe in. If you're trying to do that, you're quickly going to be found out. If you're posturing in your belief in God and you're not, you're not, and it isn't authentic to you, it's not true to your nature, people are going to spot that really quickly. I think Gandhi, Gandhi once said that he loved Christ, but he wasn't so fond of his people. Because one of the knocks on Christians is just hypocrisy. That, that seems present in our life, that, that we don't act genuinely to what we say we believe in. And so we don't posture ourselves to something that we don't believe in. That's the first element. Uh, you, you can't tell what you don't believe in. And I literally think this is a major hurdle for lots of us. I think a significant amount of us fear going and telling because we wrestle with doubt. And here's the thing that I would say to you. Don't sit on that. That God has commanded us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We are to move towards belief. If we have wrestling within our faith and our doubts and questions about issues of faith and we just sit and never allow those questions to be, to be uh, worked through, then all that creates in you is more doubt and apathy and it renders you useless for the kingdom. You will never pursue it and tell somebody about something that you don't believe in. And so this is a, a major obstacle in authenticity, that we believe in what we say that we're talking about. The second ingredient is vulnerability. Uh, we, we know this one. We like this one. We like when people are vulnerable with us. Like we like when people open up with us, but we don't necessarily value this as, as an expression for us. Vulnerability can often be seen as being weak, but uh, I... I don't see it that way. I think uh, there are, there's just tremendous power in the phrase, like, me too. Have you ever had somebody say, me too? Like, there's just tremendous power in that. There's something about saying, hey, I walked through that too, but can I tell you how the Lord worked in my life in that? Let me tell you how good he was to me in that. There's power in letting people into our strengths or our struggles and inviting people into that uh, you're working out with the Lord some of the issues in your life just creates deeper relationships and it kind of, it kind of like disarms people in their prejudices, in their misconceptions. Can we quit like projecting strength? That's not what God calls us to do. He doesn't call us to project strength. What God begs us to do is this. He says, my strength, my power is complete in what? Your weakness. Not in your strength. My power is complete in your weakness, not in our strength. And it's, and it's in our weaknesses that we depend on the Lord the most. And so we can stop projecting strength and, and feel confident to bring people into our struggles as we work them out with the Lord. Bring others into that. And the last piece in this ingredients is repentance. And, and this is where I want to give us a word of caution in the area of authenticity. Like, look, there's a different pursuit 
of authenticity that the world would train you in than what the gospel of Christ would give to you. Our culture says this phrase a lot. Just, okay, be true to yourself. Yeah, follow your heart. You be you. Be you. Find you. Do those things. But when I read the gospel, the, the gospel tells me that that's not where I should look. Like, I've got some issues inside of me, right? I have to look outside of myself for a savior because what's inside of me ain't fixing me. And so what am I trying to be true to? I mean, being true to yourself would be great if we had a bunch of fairy princesses in here. Do we have any beautiful fairy princesses in here? Dan, you want to raise your hand? I figure you might want to. No, we don't. Maybe you're like me, a warty toad. Maybe like me, the authentic part of you is kind of bad. It's kind of horrid. And so should I just, should I be true to the me that wants to just eat a, a pint of ice cream and not tell my wife and hide it? Should I be true to the, the self that just has a poor um, perception of who I am? Should I be true to the, the me that just forgets everything except for what pleases me? Should I be true to the self that just wants to watch college football all day and neglect my wife? Is that what I should be authentic to be? Because it seems like no matter how much this culture looks for authenticity, it doesn't know how to find it. We're all striving for it, but we don't know how to find it. And often the more authentic people that we see are actually the people who are less authentic. And look, there are good things about pursuing authenticity and having a desire for authenticity. We're tired of masks. That's a great place to be in. We want what's real, but what if authenticity is just another mask that is just covering up our sins? And so while the world tells me to seek its validation for my authentic self, like be you, the gospel doesn't tell me that. The gospel tells me to seek Jesus' forgiveness for my inexcusable sin. And that's different. And so friends, I, I tell you that if we don't enter a process of repentance, of exposing our lives and our hearts and our sin to the Lord, you will never find authenticity on this earth because you can't be authentic to yourself and not deal with your busted and broken heart that you cannot understand. It is true of every one of us, authentic to every one of us. We are a shell of ourselves authentically to what we were before the fall. And if we don't own that, and if we aren't seeking repentance in that thing, if we aren't being authentic to that, then we will never find authenticity. Let your authenticity be about what Christ has done for you in the new life that he has given to you. It's about him. It's not about you. That's the gospel. It's about God. It's not about me. I can't fix myself. And so I love repentance here because you can't fake it. You can't fake repentance. You either are or you're not. And people who are repentive kind of people, they're known. You can see them. And so these ideas of authenticity, we, we, we need these ideas to walk into the area of going and telling. Uh, it's important that people find our authenticity in our walk with the Lord. It will serve others well as they see that we don't just know Christ by name, but Christ is in our words, our actions, in our character. He is who we are when nobody else is around. So as we talk about this idea of going and telling, authenticity has to come to our mind. And so now to kind of land the plane for us uh, in this kind of today, I, I want to walk through two of these six styles of, of, of evangelism that we see in the Bible. Every one of you is wired differently. Not anybody of you is me, and I'm not you, right? That's a good thing. 
And so we have to figure out, like, how does God's word show us how we can be true to how he created us and still carry out this mission of going and telling that fulfilling work that God has to, for us on earth? So uh, here's what I would love for you to do. We're going to go through two of these days. I, would, I want you to evaluate yourself in these. Uh, I think this, this could bring some freedom to you and, and figuring out how God has gifted you and how you can go forward and make him known. So listen to these and evaluate yourself uh, so two styles that we're going to talk about today. Uh, one is Peter's direct approach. Peter's a pretty direct guy. And the other is Paul. Paul's a very intellectual guy. Um, so we're going to walk through those today. We're going to start with Peter's direct approach. So do you, like, like, do you guys know anybody in your life that, if I can borrow a line from a friend, is just add water kind of people? Just heavily concentrated people. They don't need a lot of information. They don't need maps. They don't need facts. They're just, I'm ready to go right now. Where are we going? They're black and white type of people, and they're ready to go. That's Peter. Peter's that guy. Peter is a black and white guy. And I, the story I love with Peter is in Matthew 15. Jesus is in front of his disciples, and he says, hey, who am I? Who do you say I am? And Peter, without hesitation, stands up. You're the son of God. Son of God. He, no hesitation. He knows. He doesn't need to be convinced. He knows. But then three paragraphs later, Peter, good old Peter, straight up stands up to Christ. Jesus lays out his plan for his mission on earth. And Peter rebuked him. Peter rebuked the son of God that he just said was. Now that's a story that you can tell at a gathering. Yeah, remember that time I rebuked the son of God? Man, that was embarrassing. Peter's just that guy. He's just a just add water kind of guy. And he just goes. This kind of direct style isn't afraid to challenge people. It's not afraid to confront people directly without precedence about where they stand with the Lord. These people can go up to anyone at any place and have a spiritual conversation. They don't need a relationship. They'll just create one. Has any of you, do, do you guys know any direct personalities? Have you ever been influenced by a direct? I have. Direct, they, can be huff, they can be tough, right? Direct personality traits, they're truth tellers. They just tell you like it is. And here, here's often, I think, our mistake in evangelism. This is the style that so many think that this is what we have to do. When we think of telling God's truth and telling God in his story, this is what we think that we're supposed to do. That we're supposed to stand up and have those really tough conversations and just be walking down there, hey, do you know Jesus? I just want to talk to you for a second about that stuff. That's what we think of. And it, you know what? For those of us who aren't wired in that way, what does that create in you? Uh, no, thank you. Please. I won't have any of that dish, please. That creates in us all this sweat and fear. I don't want to talk about Jesus because that, that, that's just so scary for us. But here's the, good, here's the good news. That's not the only way that we can fulfill the great command, the great commission. That's not the only way that we are to do these things. God has given us other ways. And so uh, direct people are great. They are great harvesters. They're great planners for the kingdom. But just a word of caution for those of you who might consider yourself to be direct people. Like, you just go, all right? I don't, there's not a whole lot of direction you need. You just see something and you're out there. But sometimes we get a little quick and we miss opportunities just to calm down and to seek the Spirit and His guidance of where we want to go and what He wants you to say. Sometimes we're all about going that we lack some perspective of, of spending some time with the Lord. So we have to make sure that we balance that. And the second thing, as we said, direct style people are just, they're honest people and they're truth tellers. And that, that's abrasive. 
You can be abrasive. If you don't know that you have that personality, you can be abrasive. And so it's important that we remember that balance that we talked about a few weeks ago of grace and truth, right? That truth, right, without grace is cruel. Like, you're a mean person if you're just a truth teller without grace. And grace without truth is deception. So we have to find that balance in our lives as we go out in interaction with people. The second style that we want to talk about today is Paul's intellectual style. Now, Paul's not one that is afraid of confronting people. He, he, he does that, but he is very intelligent. He's very well educated, and he uses his reasoning and his knowledge and his logic to win people for Christ. Uh, one of my favorite examples of Paul using this kind of style is in Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and he's in front of these uh, Greek philosophers. He's in front of the Greeks who have thousands of gods, and he notices something on the way in, and he uses it and leverages it for the Lord. And so we'll read this together in Acts 17. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Argo Pass, said, Men of Athens, I, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore, what, what therefore you worship as unknown? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so Paul, in the midst of these Greeks, very enlightened people in an enlightened culture, knows that they worship thousands of God, notices this tomb, and he leverages it to speak about, oh, you, you have a tomb for the unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God, the one and only God that you don't know. And Paul leverages this, and, and people marvel at Christ through Paul. That's a brilliant, I, I just love that, I love that Acts 17. And so people who have the intellectual style, they're inquisitive by nature, and you know these people. Like these are people that you can go to a gathering, and you can have just, you can have just the, the strangest conversation for like two minutes. Like you could talk about let's say, Ukrainian goat farming. Because who hasn't had a conversation about that? You could talk about something that silly, and the next time you met somebody who has an intellectual kind of personality, they'll give you a 20-minute dissertation about the problems with goat farming in, you, in the Ukraine. Because after they had a conversation with you, they went home and studied it for four hours and researched it. That's an intellectual type of person. They love the process. They love to study things. They love to research things, and they love deep conversations. And so in the world of going and telling and making disciples, these people get fueled up by having long and deep discussion about deep issues of faith. They love talking to people about the questions they have about theology. They invite people to have debate who have questions in their faith, who are wrestling in their, their faith. They love talking about the evidence behind faith. They, they love deeper knowledge, and they are, they are um, excited to share with you what you, they know that will help you foster a better faith. Do you guys know intellectual people? Have you, have you ever been around intellectual people? Have they encouraged you? Like, Ross, you should just raise your hand. Ross Franks, definitely. But here's the thing with intellectual people. I guarantee this. I haven't heard all six. Okay, so I can't determine what, what, if I'm this guy. I need to hear all the facts to determine all those things. So intellectual people are great. They, they are all about bringing healthy perspective, bringing understanding to those who have deep questions and doubts. Uh, they're important to our faith. And so uh, those are two of the six. And I don't want to overload us, uh, overload us with all of these personalities, these, these things that God created us 
uh, to be and how we, we use those in evangelism. There's just a lot to take in this. So we're going to divide that up over the course of the next few weeks. Um, so today, what I want to leave you and challenge you with is just that you would consider simply, uh, are you authentic in this? Are you being true to the God that you say you believe in? Or are you fooling people? And if you are, and if you are, friend, like, here's what I would ask. Risk some vulnerability and, and, and tell people. Talk to somebody who's that intelligent type because you render yourself useless to the Lord if you are sitting here wrestling with doubt and you're not pursuing it. Seek belief in him. Wrestle with these questions with somebody else. Seek belief in him. And then I want you to consider talking and walking and praying with God that he might help you overcome some of your anxiety and fear about having conversations, about talking, about showing to the people in your life who Christ is in you. Because look, Jesus gives us some really hard words in Matthew. He gives us some really hard words when he says, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Those are hard words that we have to consider because we have a command to go and tell, and we have to figure out how we do that. And so let's pray that God would embolden us, to encourage us, strengthen us, make who he has created us be, to be known to us as we foster further discussions on this. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just come before you, and we just praise you uh, as a God that never leaves us where we're at. Uh, you love us just how we are but you never leave us there. So God, I just pray that you would help us move towards a reality that we would find fulfillment in your work, in your watering and planting and harvesting of your people. And so God, teach us, convict us, move us to that reality. God, we thank you for all the blessings that you give us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's name.